All right, this week on the Righteous Remnant podcast, we have Paul Albar interviewing his spiritual mentor, Roy Harris. We hope you are blessed by his testimony and encouraged by their discussion. Roy, tell me, how was your week last week? Because I feel anytime I talk to you, you always have about 300 amazing things that happen. <laughs> <laughs> how have you been, brother? I've been good. You know, God has been uh, good to me. God has been very gracious and kind and patient with me. And uh, throughout all these years, he has uh, sustained me and helped me through thick and thin. So through all of it, I feel thankful. Praise God. That's great to hear. Um, Well, Roy, just to kind of uh, share with our audience who you are and what you do. Can you give us just a, a brief little snippet of like what it is that you do, who you are, and then we'll dive deep into your story. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm uh, originally from uh, Minnesota. Mm-hmm. I moved out here in 1986, mm-hmm. mainly because I got tired of the cold and the snow and all of that. I wanted to be in the sun. I wanted to be able to wear shorts all year round, uh, ride my motorcycle, play golf, Um, What I do for a living is I'm a consultant and an instructor. I teach uh, martial arts and self-defense and arresting control and combatives to military, law enforcement, and uh, civilians all over the planet. Uh, To date, I've done, let's see, 723 seminars in 24 countries and have had a grand time doing that. I'm very, very thankful for that because this is kind of a... uh, for me, this is kind of a, a childhood dream. I remember my grandfather's uh, long wave, short wave radio with this big, long six foot antenna on it. And I used to listen to broadcasts around the world with a map of the world next to the radio. And I used to say, man, I wonder what it's like in Brazil. I wonder what it's like in France. I wonder what it's like in one day I want to travel the world. Mm. And who would have thought through this what started out as kind of a form of self-defense and became a hobby, who would have thought that martial arts would have been that tool that uh, would have allowed me to live a childhood dream to travel around the world and teach and share and influence people. So yeah, that's what I do for a living and I I love my job. Oh, wow. That's great. Well, when it comes to martial arts, you don't know just one discipline right? You know, a myriad of different disciplines. Can you list some of those things or some of those disciplines that you um, um, study and teach? Yes. Um, Over the years, I've been involved in 27 different styles of martial arts with 51 different instructors. Wow. I have uh, six black belts and a bunch of other instructor certifications. You know, I got involved in martial arts because I wanted to learn self-defense. Yeah. And when I eventually got involved, um, the self-defense thing really caught me. It grabbed me. And then I, I started to want to go more often. And then the self-defense thing turned into a hobby. And then the hobby turned into a passion. And then the next thing I know, I'm out in California. And at the time I was... Uh, working in hotel security here in San Diego. And long story short, a patron of the hotel who was intoxicated threw a punch at me and I took him down to the ground and handcuffed him in front of a whole bunch of people. And my fellow uh, coworkers at this hotel were like, oh, Harris, what was that? Was that Kung Fu? Was that karate? And so long story short, I ended up 
teaching martial arts self-defense on the roof of a Holiday Inn here in San Diego. And that's what started oh, my wow. journey into teaching. So I started out as a hobby, became a passion. And then I started teaching on the roof of a hotel. And then I taught in my apartment. I taught at uh, women's fitness clubs. I taught at kickboxing karate studios. And then I opened my own academy. And uh, then I sold the academy and started doing uh, seminars internationally. And uh, I've kept at it for a long time. Most people who train with me know me as a Brazilian jiu-jitsu guy. Mm. However, my heart and soul are in the Filipino martial arts because of the blade. And, uh, but yeah, I've done 27 different styles, you know, from the Brazilian jiu-jitsu to the Bruce Lee's Jeet Kune Do, to Filipino Kali, to Thai boxing, to Russian Sambo, to Box Francais Savat from France. Yeah, a whole bunch of different styles. Okay, so I've known you for about 10, 12 years now. I never knew that you started teaching at a roof of a hotel. <laughs> what the heck, Roy? <laughs> that's so cool. At, at a roof of a hotel, you taught people self-defense. Yes. That's crazy. Wow. But okay, so jujitsu is what you're you're known for, really. You're kind of like a mini celebrity in, in the martial arts world. But your passion is, you said Filipino martial arts, Kali. Yes. Okay, um, knife fighting and all that stuff. Uh, not so much knife fighting. Um, he, here's the, here's the idea. Let me kind of simplify things. When you say martial arts, mm -hmm. it's like saying vehicle. It's nondescript okay. within the world of martial arts. You have all these different styles from a bunch of different countries. Some of them focus on self-defense. Some of them focus on physical fitness. Some of them fo focus on tournament fighting. And so my thing was self-defense and physical fitness and um, with martial arts, I find that in my own personal journey, my goal is to get to the roots of the matter. Mm -hmm. So when I have a blade in my hand, it's not knife fighting. It's I'm teaching my students to pay attention to the forearm because the forearm comes at you a variety of different ways. Then after I share that with the students, I say, I want you to understand this forearm thing. And I want you to think of all the standing styles of fighting. How many styles have a forearm that moves towards you? And they say, well, all of them, you know, all the punching, kicking styles, all the weaponry styles. So when you uh, focus on the details, you have all these different styles influenced by a variety of different structures. But when you pull away from the details and get this kind of 30,000 foot perspective, it's the idea of a forearm coming at you in some way, and then you either blocking it or redirecting it or doing something else with it. And so because the blade represents the majority of what the stand-up fighters do, um, and because the blade is a very serious uh, method of training and it applies to all the empty hand stuff, it's, it's where my heart is. And uh, my Filipino Kali training, I apply it to when I kickbox, I apply it when I do my judo and my wrestling, I apply it on the ground when I do my uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Wow. Okay. Okay. And you learn from the best of the best when it comes to Filipino martial arts. I mean, you learn from the great Dan Nisanto, right? 
That's who you I, I was very fortunate to uh, meet Guru Dan. Yes. Yes. Oh, wow. I had a chance to uh, meet him, train with him. And uh, he's one of the people that I really look up to in the world yeah. of martial arts, because when you talk with him away from martial arts, he is soft and kind and gentle and respectful. And you wouldn't think he knew anything about martial arts. Yeah. He's so humble. In 2004, he asked me to come to Los Angeles and teach him privately in his academy. You teach Guru yes. Dan Inusanto? Wow. He asked me to come and share some information with him. So yes. for a period of about two years, uh, I had a chance to share some of my knowledge with Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and uh, Kali Silastrissima, which is another Filipino martial arts styles. But yeah, the man is... You know, he was Bruce Lee's uh, protege and friend and training partner. And um, and for him to ask little old me, I felt yeah. like, wow, what uh, what an amazing opportunity. And this says a lot about that man's character. He was wow. willing to train and learn from one of his yeah. students. And he's done this with numerous other students. And so, wow. you know, humility that is, to me, that one of the yeah. highest qualities, one of the highest virtues that we as human beings can possess. Yeah. And so, yes, I, I look up to that man very much. Yeah, when it comes, well, talking about the word humility, I think you embody that word perfectly, brother. All right. And I'm sorry I'm bragging about you. <laughs> you know, but like, you're, you're, you're one of the most humble men I've ever met. Uh, I remember when I first met you, I, my mom was like, Man, I just met this guy. He's a martial arts instructor. Um, but Paul, he is an apologist. Like, you know, he's a, he's a phenomenal Christian. And I was just like, okay. At the time, I was really into apologetics. Mm -hmm. And so when you came over the house, I really wanted to like, I'm going to show this guy, like, I know my apologetics. I know what I'm, <laughs> you know, I know what it's like to know about the Christian faith. But you were so humble, so gentle. And then I find out that not only are you a devout follower of Christ, but you are the, you have, you have instructed in the martial arts world. And I love martial arts. My dad loves martial arts and you've taught around the world and you've taught in Quantico and all these things. You've written a book, you've done all these things, but all of your accomplishments pales in comparison to you knowing Christ. Amen. And that's what I want to talk about today. Okay. Is, is, is that, you know, you, you're a Christian, you love Christ, and, and uh, you've been serving him for many years. But let's, let's talk about that. How did you become Christian? Well, I was uh, born and raised in Minnesota. Mom was a Christian. Dad was somewhere between agnostic, atheist. You know, the atheist is a person who says, ah, God doesn't exist. The agnostic says, eh, maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. I'm not really interested. Dad was somewhere in there, mainly because of the bad experiences that he had experienced in his own life. And so they made me go to church until I was about uh, eight years old. And then one day they sat me down and they said, you know, you are free to make up your own mind. You can continue to go to church or you can stop. I chose to stop going to church mainly because I didn't believe in God and of the lives of the Christians, the people who I saw were Christians, I really didn't see anything that was different than anyone else. Mm. So uh, yeah, I had nothing to do with 
church or God or Christ or anything until around 14 years old. I had a good friend of mine. We were uh, in track together. We played football and basketball together. And one day he started to talk to me about Christ. And right there, I put the hand up and was like, oh, let's stop. And so we, long story short, we argued for mm, two to three years. You know, I argue, it's like, you know, how can there be a God? And there's all this evil in the world. How can there be a God? If And so we argued. And finally, to appease this guy, because he wouldn't stop, to appease him, I said, okay, 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 I will go to your church. And so I went to his church uh, one time, and I saw that, wow, these, uh, these Christian people are pretty serious about their God thing. Different culture than what I saw at my mom's church, but still I wasn't interested. So I went once and I thought, okay, I'm done with it. Mm. Now let me uh, go off uh, on a tangent just a little bit. At that particular point in time in my life, I'm in my middle teens and I had had a habit of stealing since I was six, seven years old. And this habit got to the point where when I was right around 12 years old with a pick, I'm sorry, with a, an awl and a screwdriver, I had the huevos to start breaking into people's homes. Oh, wow. And uh, long story short, I stole from mom, dad, grandma, neighbors, friends, everybody. So we'll get back on topic here. So now I went to my friend's church and that was a cool experience, but it wasn't for me. Um, not too long after that, I started to feel uh, a tinge of guilt in me for stealing this stuff. And then for some reason, I ended up back at my friend's church and it was cool. I really liked the people, but you know, the whole God thing wasn't for me. So uh, I was outside in the parking lot waiting for my friend to come outside so he could take me home. And I was talking with this man from church and we were talking. And for whatever reason, I just said, you know, uh, for some of the things I'm doing, I'm starting to feel guilty. I'm starting to feel this heavy weight on me. I'll never forget his words. He said, that's God's spirit dealing with your heart. Mm. And at the time, I wasn't ready for that. And so I was like, eh, yeah, whatever. Uh, wasn't interested to me. So uh, I went back to doing my thing. And then a few weeks later, I was back at my friend's church. And uh, as a result of numerous things going on in my life, my parents got a divorce and it was kind of nasty. And there was some other things going on. I had two questions come up in my mind that to me represented the uh, the gist of everything. Question number one, does God exist? Mm -hmm. Question number two, does he care for me? These two questions I believe are primal to all human beings. Does he exist? And does he care for me? And so I went on a quest, a journey to find out, does he exist? And I went to church and listened to sermons, but they had no meaning. And I went up to the altar and I prayed. And then finally, I gave my life to Christ. And it was kind of lackluster. There was really, I felt nothing. There was no change. It was just 
okay, am I being religious? What's going on? I've prayed. I've gone up to the altar. Um, so I finally decided, you know what? I keep hearing about this baptism thing. And so I decided I need to get baptized. I want to identify with Christ. I want to be buried with Christ. I want to have all my sins remitted. And so uh, I'll never forget this night like it was like it was yesterday. It was September 9th, 1979. And uh, I went to the pastor's office and the assistant pastor was the one who had baptized me. And he talked to me for a little bit, made sure I understood what baptism was, brought me into the baptismal tank. And then he prayed. He said his little thing. And then he dunked me on the water and brought me up out of the water. And then he started praying and I looked around and everybody else was praying. And so I just kind of stood there, not really knowing what to do. And then the minister opened his eyes and he said, raise your hands, thank the Lord for what he's done in your life. And I closed my eyes and raised my hands. And I was like, thank you, Lord, for what you've done in my life. And immediately gibberish started to come out of my mouth. But it wasn't just the gibberish. There was this uh, feeling that I had down inside of me that was indescribable. It was so good on a scale of one to, one to 10, it was 10 million. It oh, was wow. so good. And I opened my eyes um, and I looked at the minister and he said, don't stop. That's, that's in the Bible. I can show you in the Bible, raise your hands, thank the Lord. And so I opened my mouth and raised my hands and I started to talk in tongues again. And I have no idea how long it happened, but. Well, just to clarify, Roy, you, you yes. didn't know anything about tongues. I knew nothing about tongues. I had never seen it. I'd never heard about it. And you, you decided just to, you know what? I want to get baptized yes. just because I, I, I really want to know more about this. And so you had no idea of baptism or anything like that, or did you have kind of understand? So nobody trained you, nobody taught you anything? No, it was just a simple baptism yeah. represents our uh, burial with Christ. Yeah. And when we go down, we're buried with him. And when we come up, we come up in the newness of life. Right. That's all that was explained to me. Wow. And you spoke in tongues. Yes. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. That's just amazing. That's, Keep that's going, okay. please. Yeah, wow. So I spoke in tongues for quite some time, yeah. and then it stopped. Yeah. But the feeling was still there. The feeling still overwhelmed me. And uh, one of my friends came up and wrapped me in a towel, gave me a hug. He's like, how do you feel? How do you feel? And I was like, I feel like a huge weight has been lifted off of my shoulders. I feel... I can't describe how I feel. This is an amazing feeling. Yeah. And so it was at that point in time that the first question was answered. Does God exist? Yes. He touched my mind. He touched my heart. He touched my body. He touched my tongue. Wow. Wow. Now, the, uh, this was, from my perspective, this was the first of seven miracles that happened in my life. Wow. This first miracle was the speaking in tongues. What happened after that is even better. Um, so I have this amazing experience. I go home. I, this was a Sunday night. I wake up in the morning and I feel this 
presence with me, this exuberance, this joy, this power. Um, and I feel like I carry it with me wherever I go, whatever I do. And something inside of me is feeling like it's bubbling over. I couldn't explain it. And then what happened was uh, first thing God's spirit did to me was tell me this little prompting. I want you to go back to everybody that you stole from. And I want you to tell them that you stole from them. And I want you to offer to make amends. Wow. Now, I'd never heard a sermon on doing this. I had never been taught this by anybody. This was something that God spoke to me and tugged in my heart and said, I want you to humble yourself and go to these people and tell them what you did. And I can still see talking with family members and friends. Some of them were, were angry. They were uh, pounding their fists. Others just sat there in disbelief. Others cried. Wow. And so this was one of the first major lessons that I learned about God's spirit is that God's spirit is about humility. The primary quality is it humbles us. This is what people mean when they talk about uh, true Christianity being a relationship versus a religion. The religion part is important because it's the, the rules, the regulations, the procedures, the protocols. However, the relationship is more important. And now let me define that. All relationships are the same. You know, when you first saw and met Jenny, you had this, ooh, who's that girl? Yeah. Well, then you had to get up the courage and humble yourself and go talk to her. And then you talked to her and you got her phone number and then you called her and you talked until two, three, four o'clock in the morning. And then you went on a first date, but it wasn't just going on a date. You showered, you shaved, you put on your best clothes. These are acts of humility. Humility defines and maintains a relationship. When pride and arrogance come into play, relationships tend to do this. So right from the beginning, I feel like one of the first lessons that God's spirit was teaching me was humble yourself. And so that was what I feel was the second miracle in my life, this prompting within my heart that says, uh, do this because it's good and it's right. Mm. It wasn't easy. It was difficult. It was very uncomfortable and it was very humbling. Explain that to me again, Roy. As you were praying, God spoke to you. I mean, how does that feel? What does that look like? You were talking about how you you, you felt this little tingling in your heart. Can, can you expand on that a bit more? Yes. Um, the idea of God speaking to a person. Uh, first, God speaks to, speaks to us all the same way through his word. Mm -hmm. That's why a lot of people don't want to read the Bible. That's why a lot of people kind of poo-poo the Bible because yeah. they end up finding something in there that speaks directly to their heart and tells them to do something or not to do something. So the first way God speaks to all mankind is through his word. Yeah. Second way God speaks to people, and this is more his people, is he gives them uh, <coughs> 
an inkling, an unction, a thought. What's an inkling or an unction? These are feelings to do something or not to do something. And then what happens from that point in time is, uh, well, not what happens, but what happens is we have a thought and then we think, huh, okay. And then the thought hits us a second time. And then the thought hits Uh, us a third time and we can't escape the thought. Yeah. And we know the outcome of the thought, especially when it comes to humility. I have to go back to this person and tell them that I stole from them. Wow. Man, that's humiliating, man. That's, but it's good and it's right, but it doesn't mean it's easy. And so God speaking to me first, <clears throat> first began with an inkling, an unction, some thoughts that I was not able to escape. Yeah. And so I said, okay, I'll just go ahead and do it. And I did it. I humbled myself. And it was difficult, but when it was all done, the freedom that came with this uh, divulging of all of this bad stuff, all of this darkness was just, it was so liberating. Wow. And so the, uh, that unction, that inkling is important for all Christ followers to learn to listen to. Yeah. I've had a number of people that I have mentored ask me, well, how do you know it's God speaking to you? I said, uh, first way you know that God is speaking to you is you're not that good. What do you mean I'm not that good? Well, the inkling that says, call your brother, text your friend, go over and see so-and-so. In the beginning, we kind of poo-poo those ideas because we think, well, that can't be God. It's been my experience that God speaks to us in whispers. He doesn't yell. He doesn't scream from the the top of a building. He whispers. And for those of us who are willing to listen, he will whisper and tell us to do things or to stop doing things. Now, some will ask, well, how do you know it's from God? Well, go do it. You'd be surprised what happens much of the time. And if it's not from God, it's a lesson in humility. Wow. So having heard that small, still voice, having felt that unction, that inkling, those thoughts, I know I got to do it. Yeah. Make sense? That makes sense. So my first miracle was the speaking in tongues. The second was the prompting to uh, humble myself. (coughs) Third miracle that happened in my life. Um, My parents were divorced. I was living with my father. My father at the time was out of, uh, out of the state and the church van dropped me off at home. And I was a a latchkey kid and uh, walked up to the uh, porch and reached in my pocket. No key. Couldn't find my key. Well, I used to be a thief. Certainly there's a way in which I can break into my own home, my own father's home. So I went around the first level and checked all the doors and all the windows. Nope, they were all locked. Crawled up onto the second level and checked the the porch up there and all the windows and nope, nothing there. 
went and checked the garage to see if I could get in the garage. So maybe I could get a, an all or a, 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 a screwdriver. Nope, nothing. Hmm. Well, grandma's house is about three or four miles away. And it was 1130 at night on a Sunday night. I was too lazy to go to grandma. So I was like, well, let me check one more time. So I went around the house a second time and went around the garage second time, nothing. And then I felt that little, that little inkling. Pray. Do you believe me? Do you trust me? So right there, 1130 at night, uh, I got down on my knees and prayed and asked God to open the door. And uh, I reached for the door. It was still locked. Thought, hmm. I reached for it again. It opened. And not only did that door open, but the second door, which was locked, it also opened. I was so excited. I called a friend of mine. He's kind of like, man, you're not going to believe what happened. And he's like, man, it's 1130 at night. Don't you know? It's like, yeah, I know. But this amazing thing happened to me. So I could talk at length about these seven miracles that happened, but I'm sharing this with you to share with you uh, how the second question is starting to be answered. Does God care for me? Wow. Wow. Okay. Let's recap a bit. You were a devout atheist and a thief. Then a friend of yours approaches you and you guys debate about God. Yes. And then you decide you know what? I'm going to check this out. Humility, number one. Yes. And then you go to church and then you decide in just a small seed of faith here. I want to know more about Christ. I'm going to give my life to him. Mm-hmm. And then you get baptized and then you speak in tongues. Mm-hmm. And then you have this amazing, crazy feeling. And then you have that miracle where the door opens in front of you. And this is all in the span of your very, very early years in your walk with Christ. Yes, the speaking in tongues, the humbling myself to go back to uh, everybody I stole from and the door opening happened in the first month and a half, two months. Oh my. So you have this crazy experience of miracles in two or three months where there's many Christians who haven't had miracles like that in their 20 years with God. Yes. Up with that, Roy. What? What are we missing here on this side? <laughs> That's incredible. All to say, that is incredible. Wow. I've had people ask me similar questions before, yeah. and this is my response. I said, well, first of all, all praise to God. I don't take any credit or any glory in all of it. Um, I believe that because I had a hard head and somewhat of a hard life and kind of uh, prove it to me. I believe that was part of the reasons why this happened. Uh, (coughs) Secondly, uh, I did something that others don't necessarily do. And that was, I was all in. Um, To me, it wasn't the sinner's prayer. It wasn't being religious or trying to be a good person. It was the idea of the God of the universe, my creator, uh, has touched my life, my heart, my uh, head, my tongue. (coughs) Um, I'm going to pray 
as often as I can. I'm going to read my Bible, which was another miracle because at that particular point in time in my life, I absolutely hated, I abhorred reading. All the subjects in uh, high school that didn't involve reading, I got A's in. All the subjects that involved reading, I got anywhere between a C and an F in. Well, why did you hate reading so much? I don't know. I just hated reading. But in one prayer, in one sincere, heartfelt prayer, God, I know I need to read. Help me to read. Give me the desire to read. Next day, I had a voracious appetite, and I started to read and read, and I read the New Testament in seven days. I read the New Testament a second time in 10 days. Wow. And so uh, it's not enough just to go to church. It's not enough just to say grace at meals. Um, you know, the a Christian is supposed to be a follower of Christ. It's an individual who devotes uh, so much of their life to Christ. Uh, Let me give you an example. And this is kind of an extreme, but it makes the point. When um, we get this headache, do we reach for the Tylenol or do we get on our knees? Now, this is not to say that there's anything wrong with medicine or that God can't use medicine, but rather, uh, why don't we first get on our knees and pray and see what happens? And so back then, I was (coughs) all in, in that uh, Jesus Christ was my entire life, just like, you know, the beginning days of all relationships, you know? Think back to those first few weeks of dating Jenny. She was just, you were consumed with her and you had all these thoughts and and you did things for her. That's what Christ was to me in my life back then. I was wholehearted, fully devoted into everything and anything related to Christ and his kingdom. And so I read, I prayed, I watched... uh, television shows. I watched VHS, VHS tapes. I was sold out to Christ. And so I think uh, reason number one, God was merciful. Reason number two, I became sold out. That's incredible. Wow. And yeah, sadly, a lot of Christians now don't have that kind of dedication and that wholehearted pursuit Perhaps that's why we haven't experienced even just half of the things that you've experienced. It's really all about seeking him diligently. Yeah. Yes, I believe that. But I also believe that uh, it's not so much the experience. The experience is important, but the uh, what these experiences mean to me is these experiences really helped me after my dark years, after the prodigal son, after I walked away from God and church and Christians mm-hmm. and all of that, um, I got reminded of these events and how yeah. God had proven himself to me that yeah. he does exist. God had proven that he cared to me. <clears throat> and so these events eventually became 
pillars in my life that I can look back on and say, yeah, I remember this. I remember that. So let's talk about your dark years. So, okay. Well, well, just to kind of pivot back real quick, you, you've had these amazing miracles that happened. God answered those two questions that you asked. Mm-hmm. He existed, he exists and that he loves you. Mm-hmm. So then what happened after that? Um, what happened after that was I took my eyes off of him mm-hmm. and I focused my eyes on my brothers and sisters And as everyone and anyone who's been involved in ministry, we start to see some of the failings and shortcomings of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that can sometimes lead us astray. So as a result, (coughs) excuse me, as a result of not being taught by my parents, by my pastor, by any teachers in school, how to deal with some of the more difficult and trying events in life, I failed uh, spectacularly. Uh, Mm. So I had all these phenomenal events happen to me. And then I decided, you know what? I feel this call of God on my life. I'm going to go to Bible college. So uh, I signed up for and went to Bible college and everything was great until uh, the Bible college discovered that My girlfriend at the time was Caucasian. And because of a long history of racism and all kinds of other things, um, this was a no-no. And so they put a lot of pressure on her and her family to cut this relationship off. They talked with me, but, you know, I was madly in love at the time. And uh, none of that mattered to me. And besides, their scriptural references were kind of silly. And so I just kept on the relationship. And then finally, uh, one day she came to me and she said, it's not God's will for us to be together. And she gave up on us and didn't matter what I said. And I was crushed. And then that same day, the (coughs) the vice president of the Bible college came and uh, told me I wasn't welcome at the college anymore. And then I had to leave by 5 p.m. And so wait, wait, did he explain why? Well, what did he say? Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty long drawn out, but basically uh, because of one financial problems that I was mm-hmm. having, even though my financial problems weren't as bad as some of the other ones, the other ones they gave grace to, and they gave grants and scholarships to me, I was stuck out there and the problem, well, Here's what happened. Uh, Before Bible college even started, I'm in the dormitory hanging out with my uh, new roommates. Uh, Vice president of the college comes in and says, hey, guys, how you doing? I'm so-and-so. The president would like to speak to you. We go down to his office and he talks to us about the Bible college and its history, all of this. (coughs) And then he looks at me and he says, young man, I want to speak to you. And I want to tell you that it's a sin for a black man like you to date a white woman. So I don't want you to date uh, or go after any white women here on this college campus. And the reason why is because it's a sin and he quoted some Bible verse. And then he talked about uh, a thing that happened at the, uh, the Bible college church where the organist ended up 
fallen in love with a black man who was attending the church and it caused a split in the church. And he said, never again would he allow that to happen uh, on his campus or in his church. And so the issue was one of uh, race. I don't even call it race. I call it more color, skin color. Um, and two, they had a longstanding tradition and I was violating it and I was uh, not going along with the pro program. So that's why I was unwelcome. So your girlfriend's family first approaches you. Yes. And tells you that it's wrong for you and her to date because yes. of the color of your skin. Yes. And they use scriptural references for that. Yes. And then a vice president of a Bible college basically says the same thing to you. Yes. Wow. Now there were wow. other churches and Christian pastors who said the same thing to me. Now let's add another layer on top of that. That's I got laid horrible. off of both of my jobs. So I end up moving back to the city of my upbringing. <clears throat> Mom and dad are divorced and living at two different locations. I go to grandma's house. We're very close. We talk about this. My father calls, discovers that I'm there and tells grandma, put Roy in the phone. Hmm. Uh, I talk with my father and my dad says, you're not doing anything with your life. Therefore, you either go into the military or I disown you. And I told my father, you know, I can't do that. And we had this talk. And finally, he said, well, then come up to the house and get your things. So <clears throat> I drove up to his house and, you know, those really big uh, glad garbage bags. Mm -hmm. My dad had taken two of those, stuffed all of my belongings into those bags and put them on the driveway. He was nowhere to be found. Wow. So uh, girlfriend's family, uh, girlfriend, Bible college boot, uh, both of my jobs laid me off. And now dad has disowned me. I now go to my mom's house. Um, I tell her everything that's going on. And she says, uh, your father's right. You're not doing anything with your life but I'm not going to be as cruel as him. You have two weeks to find a job. Come job or no job, you're out. And so I looked in the paper, I scrounged, I talked to people, I couldn't find a job. On the 14th day, mom says, you have a job? I said, nope. She says, well, you got to leave. You got to get out. So I packed up all of my stuff, put it in my car, decided what am I going to do now? So I took my car to a dealership, sold it. It got $500 out of it, um, <coughs> had uh, two duffel bags, got on a Greyhound bus and went to uh, St. Paul and uh, lived on the streets for two, three weeks. So you were, you were homeless for I was homeless. close to a month. Yes. Oh, man. So what, and, what, what were you feeling throughout all this time, Roy? I mean, you encountered just evil racism and then now you're homeless. I mean, what was, what was happening inside of you? Like, what were you thinking? What were you feeling? First there was denial and then confusion and then hurt. 
and then anger and then resentment and those things left unchecked, they always lead to bitterness and unforgiveness. And so all of that was beginning to boil up inside of me. And uh, <clears throat> finally, I found a cheap place to live, uh, kind of embarrassed by this, but I found a brothel in downtown uh, St. Paul. And I got a room for rent. It was uh, $50 a month. And there was that kind of life going on there. But what I remember most was the uh, stench of urine and the cockroaches crawling over my face and crawling over my body at night when I slept. Um, so now I got a little bit of money um, and I need to find a job. And so I went out and I found a job um, and the, all of those bad negative feelings down inside of me, they built up to the point where I said, you know what? I don't need God. I don't need Christ. I don't need church. I don't need family. I don't need friends. I'll do this myself. And so I said, screw it to everybody and got a job that was uh, fortunately for me on a bus line. And I went from my little brothel to uh, it was a security guard job at a paper mill. And uh, I went back and forth, worked full time until I got enough money to buy a motorcycle, bought a motorcycle and then got a second job. This anger inside of me was fueling me. I worked two full-time jobs. And then I got crazy and got a third job, a part-time job, working 15 to 20 hours a week. I was working 95 to 100 hours a week. I was mad. I was angry. I was <clears throat> saying, you know, you know what? I'll do it myself. And while doing all that, my father hired a private investigator. He found me and I got a letter from my father. <coughs> and where were you at this time, Ro? You were still in... in Minnesota, you said? Yes, I was still in Minnesota. I was still okay. in St. Paul. Okay. And uh, so I called him and we talked and um, I had gotten a job offer to work at this, uh, this ritzy hotel. And it was kind of like two months in advance. Um, and he said, well, why don't you move back home? I want you to live with grandma and <coughs> excuse me, to pay your rent you can paint her house inside and outside. Mm -hmm. And it was at that point in time in my life that my father and I actually started to develop somewhat of a relationship. And so I stayed there for two months and then I went back to uh, uh, Minneapolis this time and worked the job, but still I didn't want to have anything to do with uh, church people or God or anything. I tried going to some churches, but I encountered some, <coughs> some of the similar attitudes and mindsets. And then uh, at this one church, I met this girl and we started to like each other. And then we started dating and then the same issues presented themselves. I had pastors, assistant pastors, elders come up to me to tell me how I was sinning and how this was wrong and I needed to break up. And so all of this was going on and uh, it was fueling this 
anger, rage, bitterness, unforgiveness in my heart. And that's when I decided, like, you know what? I'm done. Like so, yeah, with- it was a whole series of experiences with some, uh, I'll be kind, some immature Christ followers who were so stuck in their tradition of whites and blacks uh, can't uh, date, they can't marry, <clears throat> that that over, overrode their kindness and their compassion and all of this. And so, uh, yeah, those dark years were kind of memorable. Wow. It's, that's horrible, brother. That's horrible. So when you, when you say you're done, as in you were done with Christianity, mm-hmm. you said, I'm walking away from all of this. I am, in my mind and in my heart, I was walking away from what I felt were the hypocrites. Yeah. Uh, I still had a belief in God, but the trust factor wasn't there. I felt betrayed by God. I felt mm-hmm. like, you know what? You bring me out of the darkness. You allow me to experience all these miracles. You allow me to see all these things. And then you allow these people into my life to do these things, why did you allow this to happen to me? And so at the time, I didn't understand. Years later, I understood. Uh, But at the time, I didn't understand, and I was just mad and angry at everybody. So this church, they tell you the same thing. Your, Your girlfriend leaves you, and you're extremely angry now. It sounds like you had, you were like, Jonah, you left, right? So what did you do? What happened after that? So I left and then just lived my life. I uh, worked a bunch of jobs and my focus changed to money. And, uh, but I, even outside of the church, I still met people who had this thing with black and white And I decided, it's like, you know what? Ever since I've been 14 years old, I've wanted to move to California. California is kind of like a mixing pot. I really don't know if these kind of issues exist out there, but the idea of riding a motorcycle all year long and playing golf and wearing shorts, that was very appealing to me. And then uh, February of 86, kind of same, same thing that happened at the Bible college both of the jobs that I was working laid me off within 10 days of each other. And I thought, yeah, like, you know what? This is one of those now or never times. I don't want to be older and say, I wish I would have, could have, should have. And so uh, when I got (coughs) laid off of my job, I said, okay, um, I'm moving to California. And I got laid off. I think it was like a, Tuesday or Wednesday, I drove back to my hometown and told everybody, parents were upset, my family was upset, my friends were upset, but two friends of mine, they're like, hey, that's a cool idea. We're thinking about the same thing. Can we go with you? And it's like, yeah, sure. So uh, at the end of February, 1986, I uh, found a retired 
dentist who was moving to San Diego and needed somebody to drive his car from uh, Minneapolis to San Diego. And that's what I did. I drove his car out and moved out here. And now it's a fresh start. And now I think I'm finally done with all of that. <coughs> Little did I know some of those same things would follow me out here in some churches out here in Southern California. So you still decided to go to churches. <laughs> I, I still felt that, that tug, that call of God, the, the grace, the love, the mercy. I still felt that, that tug for me to come back to him. And so I tried, but all I could see was these imperfect people who were uh, telling me that because of my skin color, I have to do this and I can't do that. Roy, what you went through was beyond church hurt. It wasn't just church hurt. It was, this sounds like church devastation. (laughs) A lot of people that if if were in your shoes, they would have walked away from the faith, but here you are still feeling God's presence and want to give it a chance. And so can you, can you talk about that? Like, yeah. So why did you choose to do that? I mean, a lot of people would have just walked away. Yes, I believe it was because of my beginning story, you know, the, like many people, Mm -hmm. all you know is to go to church. All you know is to pray and maybe read the Bible. Um, There was no talk of speaking in tongues of God's spirit filling you and indwelling you and giving you a power, giving you a joy, giving you something that you can't quite put your finger on and describe. Those things, even though I had pushed myself away from the people, I couldn't erase those memories. And I still felt that tug of God's spirit to come back to him. Um, And so... I decided, well, let me go to church. Let me try this church. Let me try that church. And I kept experiencing these same things. And uh, so it was about 19 years that uh, I walked away from it all. Let me fast forward a little bit and then come back. The reason why God allowed me to experience these things is so that I could speak some new dialects. I speak the dialect of anger, of bitterness, of resentment, of hostility, of unforgiveness. I speak these dialects fluently because I remember what I went through and I still have those emotions deep down inside of me. What God has done with that is he has taught me about forgiveness. (coughs) Excuse me. And he has given me a ministry kind of like a, an internet pastor, an internet ministry where people write to me and ask me questions, and they all have to do with anger, resentment, bitterness, hostility, uh, unforgiveness. And so I was allowed to experience those things and go through those things so that I can now minister to people who have struggles in those areas. I can't talk about sex or prostitution. I can't talk about drugs, 
but I know the anger and bitterness and I, I know those very well. So I uh, experienced that in Minnesota. I experienced that in California. <clears throat> and then February of uh, 2002, I am in my truck driving on my way to my academy because I need to pick up a guy from the airport. I need to go to my academy, my martial arts academy to check my email. <coughs> it was raining out. My vehicle, as I was turning the corner, uh, my vehicle spun out of control and I T-boned a light post. It took my truck and bent it in half. It was horrible. Uh, threw me out of the vehicle, split my head open. I have uh, about a six or seven inch scar on the top of my head. <clears throat> so I'm now at uh, a hospital here in San Diego. <clears throat> I'm laying on a gurney after they had done all of the, the CAT scans and uh, they had sewn my head up and everything. So I'm laying on the bed and on the gurney, there were so many accidents, they didn't have a room for me. I'm laying in the hallway on a gurney. And I wake up and I look at the clock on the wall. It's the same clock as the clock on the wall in my academy. I look over to my right and there's one of the police officers that I used to work with. He's sitting next to me, <coughs> confused, thinking he is sitting by me in my martial arts academy. I look at him and I say, what are you doing here? And he says, oh, man, you had a really bad accident. Uh, you're at uh, Scripps Memorial Hospital. I said, no, I'm not. I'm at my academy. He's like, no, no, you're in the uh, uh, waiting area of Scripps Memorial Hospital. And I sat up and then I could feel all of this. Well, <clears throat> what happened next was I prayed for the first time in I don't know how many years. And this was my pray, my prayer. You know, God, I don't trust uh, men of the cloth. I don't trust organized religion. I don't trust any of that. Tell you what, make you a deal. You put a man of God in my life that truly cares about me, not my wallet. If you do that, I'll serve you. And that was the start of my prodigal journey back to my father. You made a bargain with God. Yes. Wow. Little did I know that man of God was a student at my martial arts academy. <laughs> That's incredible. So talk yeah, to me so, about that. So what happened there? <clears throat> so eventually I get back to my uh, academy and I'm teaching and he's a new student, relatively new student. And so I said to him like, Hey, how you doing? Uh, and I said, so what do you do for a living? And he says, oh, I'm a, an assistant pastor over at uh, Horizon Christian Fellowship. And I was like, oh, oh, oh okay. Uh, and we talked some more. Were you like, God, is this you answering my prayer? Is that what you were thinking? That was, that was going on inside of my head. I was kind of like, oh, okay. <laughs> uh, and so we talked some more and, you know, because I had, been a Christian, been a Christian and been on my journey to become a minister, you know, he asked me, so are you a Christian? And my response was, oh, oh, oh my. 
<laughs> spoke in tongues again, Roy. <laughs> <clears throat> and so uh, we talked a little bit more and then we finished the training and then some time went by and he's like, you know, we should, uh, we should go to lunch sometime and just, you know, sit down and talk. It's like, yeah, yeah, that, that's good. And so we went to lunch at uh, Marie Callender's. I remember it like it was yesterday. <clears throat> and he brought one of those big, thick Bibles with him. And I remember thinking, oh, no. He's uh, one of those. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so <coughs> we talk. And uh, then he says to me, he's like, you know, I prayed about this, uh, this meeting, and I feel as though God has given me a message to give to you. And I was like, okay, this should be interesting. Um, and he's like, you've been here before? It's like, yes, I have. Uh, you know, the Apostle Paul talks about the uh, gifts of the Spirit. I've seen and experienced seven of them. So... I'm curious to see and hear what you're going to say. <clears throat> so he says, well, this is what I feel God uh, wants me to tell you. It's time for you to stop blaming whoever you're blaming. Get up off of your duff and do what God has told you to do. Whoa. Immediately. Whoa. I started crying. And he was gracious enough to. <clears throat> uh, not talk anymore. He just listened. And then I said, uh, let me share with you my journey. He knew nothing about my journey. And so I shared with him what had happened to me. And his words were, it's like, yeah, we Christians can be kind of cruel at times. We can be mean spirited. I'm sorry you went through that brother, but I'm here to love you back to faith. At a Marie Calendars. Yes. Here you are crying, weeping in a restaurant. Dang. Yes. Wow. That's then what happens next? <clears throat> then I start going back to church and end up at a large church. And uh, I feel that tug on my heart. And it turns out that. Uh, this church has something that they called the pit crew. Interesting name, the pit crew. What's the pit crew? Stands for pastors in training. <clears throat> and so they wanted you to do all of the menial stuff for, uh, they had a new uh, Bible basics program that they were teaching to people. And so those of us who were pastors in training, we started out with cleaning tables and moving tables and moving chairs and setting up lighting and the audio and doing all that. <coughs> and then little by little, uh, we got to do some other things. And then we got discipled by one of the, uh, uh, assistant pastors at that church uh, once a week. And it was an amazing experience because they, uh, <clears throat> uh, I'll just say it this way. These dudes were serious. First requirement 
to be involved in ministry at this church um, was you had to download and install the software Angel Eyes. Are you familiar with Angel Eyes? Yes. Is that the one where they they track if you go on on sites that you're not supposed to? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, They track your keystrokes. And this gets emailed weekly to three different people at the church. This was a method of accountability and transparency. So how did you feel when they required that of you? What were you thinking? It's like, well, that's understandable. Because (coughs) it's been my experience that when it comes to ministers within the church, two kinds of ministers primarily. There's several other, but two kinds. One I call the chandelier ministers. And these are (coughs) the senior pastors. Well, the senior pastor and the pastors that are visible to everybody. Mm -hmm. You know how at the end of service, sometimes pastors will come down and pray with people and counsel people. These are the chandeliers and they're good. They're important, uh, but they're very visible. Second kind of minister is what I call the back hall light minister. These are the ministers that people don't necessarily know who are ministers. (coughs) They predominantly work with people one-on-one or sometimes in small groups, two-on-one or three-on-one. And they are the people who work behind the scenes. I told the pastor, I said, you're a chandelier. I'm a backhaul light. Please do not uh, put me up on the podium to teach or preach. You know, in my line of work, what I do for a living, uh, I'm kind of a chandelier. A lot of people know me. But in ministry... I don't want to be a chandelier. I want to be a backhaul light. A backhaul light is something that you only need it at specific times and you have to know where it's located. Yeah. That's so great because so many, uh, those who are pastors today, and I don't mean to paint everyone with the same brush here, but I get the feeling that they all want to be chandeliers. Mm -hmm. They all want to be seen. But being that backhaul light minister is so important. That's I feel like it's needed more because that's when you're getting down and dirty and really ministering and discipling, and you're not you're not getting any kind of uh, you know tap on the back. Really, you know, you're just wow. Okay, keep going, brother. So then, what happens next? So um, I went through the pastors and training program, and then that particular pastor felt called of God to start his own church. And he took a handful of the pastors in training, called them aside and said, I would like you to pray about this. I'd like you to be a part of this new upstart church uh, that we're going to start here in San Diego. And uh, he came to me and asked me if I would be willing to be one of the uh, assistant pastors. And I said, Uh, Sure, let me pray about it and I'll get back to you. And I prayed about it and I felt that uh, this was something that not only would our Lord want me to do, but this is something that would help to mature me. Because in ministry, you see all kinds of things that other people don't see. And uh, it's important that Christians get beyond the 
the two-year-old stage where it's all about them. You know, uh, <coughs> let me give you an example. Um, when I go to church, I don't go to church to listen to the music, to have the <coughs> to minister, uh, teach and dump some teachings or wisdom into me. Those are a part of what I do. But the primary reason why I go to church is to minister. So I will go to church <coughs> and pray beforehand, pray for the minister, pray for the service, pray for people who are there, <clears throat> because you never know who's going to walk through the door. And when I attend service, I'm like everybody else. I <coughs> pray, I worship, I listen. But then when service is over, I always stick around. I look for uh, either the person that, A, God touches my heart and whispers and says, I should go over and talk to that person. I should go over and pray for that person. <clears throat> or some of the more obvious signs where somebody is sitting in a pew by themselves with their head down, <clears throat> their body language is downtrodden, and everybody else is leaving. And so uh, because I feel as though Christ has helped me to mature beyond the two-year-old where it's all about me and the world revolves around me, <clears throat> you know, just like our, <coughs> our normal life. Once we get to a certain age, dad comes along and says, Paul, take out the garbage. Paul, mow the lawn. Paul, clean your room. You now start getting responsibilities because you're a part of this family. You're not just here to eat and watch TV and do these comfortable and fun things, you have to do some struggle, some discipline things as well. <clears throat> and so through all of this experience in after my prodigal years and after coming back, I feel as though Christ has uh, helped me to grow up and mature and uh, use the calling and the gifting that has been given to me. Because in the end, it's all about him. It's about, all about his kingdom. And I'm just a very small, tiny cog in the wheel. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, my gifting, my calling, number one, is I'm a listener. I listen to people. Uh, longest I've ever listened to someone is a little over eight hours. Eight hours? Eight hours. Without saying anything other than, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wait, wait, wait. This person talked for eight hours? Yes. That's a gift, too. <laughs> wow. <clears throat> and so uh, with this gifting, with this calling, I've discovered that many people inside their head or deep down in their heart, they have a good idea of what it is they're supposed to do. <clears throat> but they need somebody to take the time to understand, to relate to them, to be compassionate with them. So I listen <clears throat> and I don't give them any advice unless they either open the door 
or they ask me, what do you think? And so uh, my ministry is towards people who struggle with the anger, hostility, bitterness, resentment, uh, unforgiveness. <clears throat> and a part of my ministry to them is to listen to them. I'll give you an example. One of the uh, things I was doing um, uh, on one of my trips to, I forget which country I was going to, but the first leg of the trip was uh, from San Diego to Atlanta. And I'm in the coach section and uh, <clears throat> they just closed the door. <coughs> We're getting ready to leave. And then I hear, would passenger Roy Harris please ring his call bell? First thing I do is I reach for my phone and I reach for my wallet. It's like, I'm good. Why are they calling me? So I hit the, uh, the call bell and <coughs> guy comes up and says, uh, Mr. Harris, can I see your ID? I show him my ID. He goes, we have a seat for you up here in first class. And this was my first time ever sitting in first class. And so I was like, yeah, yeah. So I get up, <laughs> I get my stuff. I go to first class. This was God ordained. I sit next to this gentleman who's in his uh, early 60s. He's like 62, 63 years old. And we sit down and we talk and have this lovely conversation. And in the conversation, <coughs> I mentioned that uh, many moons ago, I used to be an assistant pastor at a church. His body language changed. And he says, oh, you're one of those. Well, I have a question for you, pastor. I said, sure, sure. I don't know if I can answer it, but fire away. He says to me, why did God kill my boy? His son uh, died in a car accident when he was 38 years old. He, the son, was 38 years old. And uh, the father and the son were like brothers. They were very close. Mm. And, uh, you know, this ripped out the father's heart. <clears throat> so that was his question to me. Mm. And so with folded arms and a scrawl on his face, he asked me this question. So to bring levity to the situation, I said, don't you have anything more difficult? That's an easy question to answer. Look on you his face you really said that? Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> um, he says, well, answer the question first, and then we'll see. I said, I'm just messing with you. But first, I want to lay some ground rules. Number one, I'm not here to jam anything down your throat. Number two, I'm not here to argue with you. So if you want to argue, I'm the wrong person. I am here to share something with you. Number four, this meeting, this talk is ordained by God. Why do you say that? I said, <coughs> remember, I should be back there and coach. Yet the person who had this seat, who paid for this seat, is not here. And I'm the first person on the list. And here you come to me with this question. So it's God ordained because God is knocking on the door of your heart. I said, so uh, for starters, let me say this. Um, I don't know the answer to that question because I'm not God. If I was God, why would I be sitting on a plane next to you? Wouldn't I just magically transform myself from San Diego to Atlanta? So let's uh, put things where they, <coughs> where they are. 
<clears throat> I'm not God. <clears throat> but I can tell you this. Uh, your struggle right now is not your belief in God. You believe in God, but you don't trust him because you feel betrayed because he took something of great value from you. He said, no, I don't believe in God. I said, yeah, actually you do. No, I don't. I said, you do believe in God. Why are you telling me that I believe in God? Because your first question was, why did God kill my boy? If God doesn't exist, God couldn't kill your boy. And he looked out the window and he thought for a little bit. And then he said, you're good. You're good. I'm listening. I shared some more stuff with him. And then I listened. So for that four and a half hour, four hour and 45 minute flight, <clears throat> I talked a little bit, but I listened mainly. At the end, he cried, held my hand, gave me a hug and said, thank you so much. You have no idea what this means to me. <clears throat> and I said, well, let me share this with you. You're not supposed to go back to church yet. What you're supposed to do is find time to get on your knees and talk to your heavenly father because he misses you. He loves you. And he wants to talk to you. He's the God of the universe. He can handle everything you say to him. I shared with him my first prayers. When I first came back, I shook my fists at God. I pounded my fists. <clears throat> I was mad. I was angry. I told him this story. And I said, I want to encourage you to do this with God. Because he already knows it's in your heart. Share it with him. And then when you're ready, take the time to find a church that is worthy of you being there. Why? Because not every pastor and not every priest is worth your time, is worth your money, is worth the investment of your gifts. You have to find the pastor or the priest that is going to love you back to faith, that is going to nurture you, that is going to help you, and that is going to guide you with the use of your gifts and your callings for God's ministry. That's going to take some time. You're not ready for it now, but you're ready for prayer. And he gave me a big hug again. He's like, thank you so much. Um, <clears throat> and so my gifting, my calling is I went through all those experiences because I speak those dialects, but also God gave me the gift of listening to help people to, uh, I listen for long periods of time because when people work through things, they tell a story and then they cycle around back to the beginning and they tell a story a second time mm. and they tell a story a third time and they tell a story a fourth time. <clears throat> this is how many people process and struggle through things. They just need somebody of compassion and understanding. Um, and so this is what I do behind the scenes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Roy, of all the people I know, you're, you're the busiest. <laughs> you're not probably the busiest. You are the busiest guy I know. You travel, I feel like every single day you're in a different country. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and um, you're, you're my spiritual father. You're my mentor. You've raised me up in the faith. And one thing that I've learned from you is you really do take the time to care. Um. I just remember I would ask questions of you and, uh, and it would be these deep theological questions and you would respond back with a book. 
<laughs> and then you tell me that you're actually on a plane to Norway somewhere. So you really take the time to disciple and care for people. Um, how do you do it? How do you have the energy, the time to, because I know I'm not the only one you're discipling. You have a ministry where you have thousands of people reaching out to you. So please share with us, what is your secret <laughs> to those um, in ministry? <laughs> uh, I don't think it's necessarily any secret. It's uh, number one, <clears throat> the gifting and the calling. Yeah. And the gifting and the calling have to be developed. Uh, they have to be worked through. They have to be polished. <clears throat> so the energy and the drive comes from my Lord and Savior. Mm. Uh Second thing that drives me is the, remember I talked about the man of God that uh, our Lord put in my academy and he loved me back to faith. <clears throat> when I was about to uh, accept this assistant pastorship at this uh, church, I went to him and I asked him for his thoughts and his guidance. And I'll never forget what he said. He said this, if this is what you truly believe God has called you to, uh, God will give you the gifting, God will give you the calling, God will give you the drive, God will give you the energy. But what's most important is that you remember ministry comes first. Let me say it another way. Ministry is more important than your martial arts academies. Ministry is more important than your motorcycle rides. Ministry is more important than your golf dates. Ministry is more important than anything. So that <clears throat> when you put yourself out there to people and people need help, they are going to call you during dinner. They are going to text you um, when you're out on the golf course. They are going to do all these things. They're going to request things at the most inconvenient of times. If this is truly God's calling on your life, then you need to remember that ministry is number one. And so to this day, I still get text messages from people at midnight, one o'clock in the morning, five o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the afternoon. <clears throat> Why? Because they know I care. They know first, I'm not going to shove anything down their throat. Uh, but more secondly, I'm more... Uh, secondly, uh, I am focused on helping them overcome this battle, this struggle, even if I have to say, you know what, I don't have any expertise in this area. Let me talk to my some, some of my brothers in Christ and see if there's somebody that collectively we know who can help you with this. You know, Tony Robbins over the years has said some really fascinating things and one of the most memorable things he said was this, <clears throat> the greatest resource in life is to learn to be resourceful. It's the idea that you don't have to know everything. You just have to know where to go to get something. That's another reason why relationships are so important. You have a friend who's a car mechanic. You have a friend who's a lawyer. You have a friend who's a pastor. You have a friend who's a, a Catholic priest. You have a friend who is whatever. And if somebody asks you a question about something that you don't know the answer to, you're honest enough to say, you know what? I don't know, but 
I know some people who may know, give me a couple of days to get back to you. And so I have this drive down inside of me that says, I want to, number one, <coughs> hear those words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. That's it. Second thing that drives me, <clears throat> my paternal grandfather, um, he passed away when I was 10 years old. And even though back then I really was naive to the whole skin color thing, in the city where I grew up, there was only one mortuary that allowed uh, funerals of black people, only one. And uh, so I remember all the funerals I went to, it was always black people, except my grandfather's funeral. There were so many Caucasian people. There were some Asians who were there. And I remember I was 10 years old and I was looking around going, wow, all these people here. And it's a pretty profound thought for a 10 year old boy. But I remember thinking, wow, when it's my turn to take my last breath, I want to know that I had the same impact that my grandfather had. I look at all these people and I see he cared for them. And so Jesus Christ drives me, my, father, my grandfather's reputation and his death. That's also a driving point in my life. Praise God. That's awesome. That's awesome, man. Wow. One last thing I'd yeah. like to uh, share with you is uh, it's a very, very important topic. It's the topic of forgiveness. And uh, <clears throat> let me draw an analogy. Forgiveness is like the topic mathematics. It's complicated. Um, mathematics, we got counting, basic arithmetic, algebra, geometry, trigonometry, calculus, and then the crazy math. Can somebody learn all of those in a minute, an hour, a day, a week, a month, a year? Not possible. It's the same thing with forgiveness. You can't, you can conceptually learn the steps that you have to take, but when it comes to actually doing it, it's a process. So <clears throat> this is what I have learned from reading my Bible, reading a bunch of books on the topic, and my own personal experience. Number one, step number one, to forgive somebody who did something, said something. First, we need to pray and bring Christ into the equation. Why? He's the only one who can give us the strength, who can guide us, who can help us over the course of time. And that prayer is something we need to do daily, weekly, monthly. So number one, we always bring Christ into the equation because he is our true source of strength. Number two, step number two, this is one of the more difficult ones. We start the process of curtailing our tongue and our mind. You know how that incident happened and then we dwell on it, we ruminate, we don't let that thing go, <clears throat> we experience those same emotions again. We need to curtail that and we need to 
have a mental discipline to focus on something different. Maybe we go play basketball. Maybe we don't go do some push-ups. Maybe we watch a, a comedy on Netflix or on Facebook or something. We curtail our mind. We control our mind through a mental discipline. Second thing we do is we curtail our tongue. You know, when the wounds are still fresh, they're still deep, there's still a little bit of blood. We want to, at times, talk about it. Yeah, he did this to me and he did that to me and we wanna talk about it over and over again. What we're doing is we're licking our wounds and we are committing evil. We are feeding into unforgiveness. So first we need to bring Christ into the, uh, into the equation and we need him every day. And then number two, we need mental disciplines to stop us from talking about it and stop us from mentally dwelling on it for extended periods of time. You know, we probably will never forget, but we need to make the conscious choice to not relive it in our mind or relive it with our tongue. That's so hard, though. It is. That's extremely hard to do. It is. Because it feels good to talk about it, to have somebody just listen to your pain. You almost kind of justify it. No, yes. they need to hear what I mm -hmm. went through. Yes. And we justify it because, we're, hey, we're just venting. But no, that feeds into the unforgiveness. Well, there's nothing wrong with venting. There's nothing mm. wrong with uh, you go to one person. Mm. and you vent once, you vent twice, yeah. you vent five times. Remember I talked about this as a process. Yeah. This is not something somebody gets over very easily. Yeah. So the venting, nothing wrong with that, but you do it with one person because they have your back, they love you, they know what you're going through, and they're never going to tell anybody else. And so that process of getting over it, sometimes we've got to spill it out. Nothing wrong with that. But the spilling out needs to be not to everybody at work, mm. everybody at church, yeah. everybody at the basketball court, uh, everybody at the gym. The community doesn't need to know about it. So that's what I mean about curtailing our, our tongue is if we need to vent, because we're not over it yet, then it's that one person. Yeah. That makes sense? No, that makes sense. That makes sense. Uh, yeah. Step three. Now it gets a little bit more difficult. Now that we have uh, gotten some control over our mind and over our tongue, <coughs> now we make the concerted effort to bring dignity back to the life of the offender. First, dignity begins in our own mind, and our own heart. You know, dignity is one of those words that <clears throat> there is a internal struggle that goes on where because of uh, maybe this person is somebody we work with, maybe it's a family member, because we're forced to be in the presence of this person, every time we get around them, Body language closes up, but inside of our mind, we've got explicatives going on inside of our head. We're reliving what they said. We're reliving what they did. <clears throat> After we get back some 
mental control and control of our tongue. Now we need to make sure that this person is seen as a human being, not as an offender. A human being that we give dignity to, that we give compassion to, that we give mercy to. And so step three in the process is we try and make the effort first inside of us, and then second, out of our tongue, and third, with our hands and our feet, we try and bring dignity back to the offender. Make sense? That makes sense. (coughs) Next step, we, and this is, uh, each step is harder. It's like... uh, it's like getting in shape. I'm know? already sweating, Roy. I'm sweating right now <laughs> listening to all these steps. But please keep going. <laughs> Step four. Now that we've gotten control of our mind, gotten better control of our mind, gotten better control of our tongue, we've brought some dignity to the person inside of our head, inside of our heart, <clears throat> and to our tongue publicly. Now we start to pray for the person. And we make a concerted effort to do good things for them. We hear they're struggling financially. And God blessed us with something. And so what do we do? We go and uh, say, hey, um, can I talk with you? I don't want to talk about anything that involved that went on in the past. I want to talk about the present. What's the present? I hear through the grapevine that you are struggling with this. Um, I have this envelope with some money in it to help you through this time. Or maybe their child is struggling in school. And so you offer to go teach the child and mentor the child for two months to get their grades back up to where they used to be. So the fourth step, you now pray blessings on them and you start to do blessings on them. This is hard. This is hard hard. because of the enemies of our soul who bring those things back to our mind, who bring those emotions and those thoughts back to us. So first we pray. (coughs) Then we get control of our mind and our tongue. Then we bring some dignity to the person inside of our head and then through our tongue. And then number four, we start to pray and do good things for them. Number five, this is the most difficult one. And number five, you can go five and six. I'll just call it five. Five is reconciliation. It's the idea of bringing the person back to the position that they had before in our life. Now, when I say this to many people who are still struggling with the first part where they're struggling with praying and bringing Christ into the uh, equation, they can say, no way, I would never reconcile with the person. Well, that may be how you feel right now, but uh, maybe God wants reconciliation. Maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. I just want you to consider and to contemplate this. Or there may be another set of circumstances where the person has passed away. The person has moved away and you don't have any uh, forwarding information. So reconciliation is not possible, but it should be something on our heart that we should consider because 
It's what God did with you and me and all of us. He reconciled the world unto himself. He brought us back to this position in this place of dignity, of love. <clears throat> and so forgiveness, we pray, we curtail our mind and our tongue. We try and bring dignity to the offender. We pray and do good things for the offender. And then if possible, we try and reconcile with them and the reconciliation <clears throat> may not necessarily be back to the same position, but <clears throat> it may be to a great position of trust in our life. And that shows the person that forgiveness is complete. And it shows the community that's watching forgiveness is complete. Because many will look at that and say, how did he do that? How did she do that? Well, he did that through the help of God Almighty and through mental disciplines. I've never heard of forgiveness broken down like that. You just taught us forgiveness martial arts. <laughs> I want to be a fifth degree black belt in forgiveness. <laughs> That's so powerful, Roy. That is so powerful. Yeah, I, I never really thought of it as, because anytime we want to forgive as Christians is that we want to go through it so quickly. Mm -hmm. And as if we're just washing, okay, okay, no, I forgave, I forgave. But no, there's actually steps and efforts to, to go through this. Yes. But it's so hard. It is. It's so hard. So thank you for breaking it down for us. Man, right now I'm like convicted. There's like, I'm like, man, I'm like, I don't know. I'm just reminded like I need to reconcile with this person. So <laughs> the Holy Spirit is speaking, Roy. <laughs> so Humility is where it's at. Yes. Amen. Amen. So I want to ask this, Roy, have you ever reconnected with those who've, who've hurt you? Um, have you talked with them or? With some of them, yes. Yes. I remember, oh. <clears throat> I'll give you an example. With the whole thing with uh, Bible college. Yeah. Um, many years later, there was a whole group of us that uh, reunited uh, in Minnesota. And we went to this restaurant and uh, this particular woman had married and had some children <coughs> and she was going to be there. And everybody remembered my poor, horrible, terrible Christian response. I was mean to her. I was cruel to her. It was it was really bad. Um, and so people were concerned about the two of us being in the same room and being at the same table. But I said, no. No, I'm good. I'm good. And when I uh, saw her and her husband, I gave both of them a hug. And um, we talked uh, quite, uh, quite some at quite some length. And it was fun talking with her again. And I wanted her to see and feel um, I'm over it. This is done. Um, and I'm glad I was able to do that. And so, yeah, forgiveness is this process that occurs over time, weeks, months, sometimes even years. Um, and it is possible. It just, we have to look at forgiveness like getting in shape. You know, when we carry a little bit around the, the belly and we want to get back in shape. What are you talking about me, Roy? <laughs> <laughs> and we go through this 
rigorous workout. We're working out three times a week and we changed our diet a little bit. Um, and then 90 days later, you know, we stand a bit taller and we're muscular. We're very fit. <clears throat> it's easy to take a snapshot at us before and us now. And what we miss is all that work that took place in between. That is the journey of forgiveness. Yeah. It's an actual workout. It's, actual, wow. it's a workout for your mind, for your tongue, yeah. and for your heart. And what comes with it after forgiving? Tell us your experience, your feeling, weight off your shoulders, I imagine. Freedom. 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 Wow. Well, Brother Roy, thank you so much for taking the time to share your story. Those miracles, though, wow. God, please give me some of those miracles. That's amazing. And just thank you for, for teaching us what it means and how to forgive. I really appreciate you coming on to the show, brother. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you very much for uh, having me. And I enjoyed it. And uh, I always pray for you and Jenny. You guys are uh, on my heart. You're very close to my heart. And I, uh, I love both of you. Oh, likewise, brother. Can't wait to see you again. Oh, but before I let you go, you are working on a website right now, right? You have uh, myjourneyinchrist.com. Yes, myjourneyinchrist. I'm redoing it. You know, when I initially wrote the, uh, the content for that, I was in a different place in my journey in Christ. And so I have, I'm going through the process now of rewriting everything so that uh, the message is different. And let me share this interesting thing with you. Truth is important, but sometimes what's more important is the, is the manner in which we package truth. Sometimes truth is packaged by a chainsaw and razor blades. It's still truth, but it's hard for people to swallow. Other times we take truth and we package it with pom-poms and cotton candy and things that are soft. <clears throat> and maybe we get the effect, maybe we don't get the effect, but it's important to learn how to take truth and package it so that it's more palatable to those who are looking at it for the first time. And so that's what I'm trying to do with the new version of my journey in Christ is to show people from my days of atheism to my, uh, the days of the miracles in Christ, to my prodigal days, to my days of hypocrisy, to my current days and show people, but say it in a way that's more instructive and encouraging. So yeah, myjourneyinchrist.com. I hope to get that up and running by, uh, we'll say April 1st. I should say the first week of April. April 1st, guys. April 1st week of April. Please mark it on your calendar. I can't wait. Yeah, I've been waiting for that to uh, uh, come live. So I'm very excited for your website. Well, thank thank you. you, brother. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right. We'll talk soon. See you soon. Yes. yes. And uh I look forward to our, our next talk. Hopefully we'll invite you again and we'll have more amazing talks here. So thank you again, Roy, for taking the time. Thank you. Appreciate that. Appreciate you, brother.